Hi, this is Melissa Cohn. I'm the president of MC Home Loans, a mortgage bank located here in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. I'm bringing this podcast to you as the first of many that will talk about the issues that surround real estate, mortgage banking, the legal aspect of it, and anything more. And today, I'm thrilled to have Neil Garfinkel from Abrams Garfinkel here today joining me to talk about real estate law and real estate and what's going on in the marketplace. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you here. You're one of my favorites. Uh, Neil, tell me, why did you get into real estate law? I got into real estate law. Um, actually, I got into real estate. I worked for my uncle and my cousin through high school and college. They were in the real estate business. Um, my personality is such that um, I, I don't like to fight with people. A lot of lawyers, they're adversarial. Real estate law is not about fighting with people, quite frankly. It's about making people happy. And so whether we're representing a purchaser or a seller, we're representing a bank, people leave our office They've done. They've accomplished something. We help people achieve the American dream, and I know that sounds cliche, but that's really the truth. We're doing something good for people. No, I mean you're absolutely right. When someone's purchasing a property, it's generally one of the largest financial transactions of their lives, and I think that it's important for everyone in the transaction to realize the importance of that transaction. And it's so great to hear from you that you understand that. And and how? What's your trick? You know, the trick is, I think, is recognizing that regardless of how large the transaction is, that um, small, big, people aren't accustomed to the transaction. They, they really don't know what to expect. So whether they're very uh, savvy or not so savvy, our job is to make the transaction as smooth and as enjoyable for them as possible and to recognize that you and I do this all day long. They don't. And so we really try to help to make sure that our buyers, sellers, whoever the case, it's an enjoyable transaction that gets them to a really good place. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that you know communication and education, everyone understanding the process is so critically important. And even more so today with the uh, TRID enactment of the federal government coming out with new disclosure guidelines, I call TRID the reason I drink. Um, but what really represents is that the TILA RESPA integrated disclosure, which takes the old good faith estimates that we got and essentially puts them all together into pieces. But to everyone, TRID sounds like it's something new, it's something scary, and it's really not. And, and how do you address that with your buyers? So we're an industry of acronyms. We have all kinds of acronyms, and there is, um, there's a language that you and I speak that the consumer is still not used to. So, so going true. back to the trick is to, is to really is to simplify the process and make sure that they understand what they're getting into. Buying a co-op, buying a condo, whatever the case may be, we can't assume that everyone knows that what we do every day. And so, again, I think the trick is, and I know you do this, is to, to simplify the process. I think that's really important. With respect to trade, again, it's all about taking the time to explain and making sure that everyone understands what is um, required of them. I know you have your magical four C's. Can you tell me about them? Sure. So uh, TRID is this new law. Um, and again, I think it's ultimately really good for the consumers. Uh, but it requires all the participants to, um, to collaborate, communicate, uh, cooperate, and also to deal with each other with consideration. Um, because the it's really the largest change to the mortgage industry, certainly in the last 20 years, um, it really requires everyone to help each other get to the finish line. 
And I completely agree with you. And, you know, we all know that after uh, the real estate meltdown in 2008, uh, that the federal government has stepped in, that they have created the CFPB in order to regulate banks and mortgages and create regulations that are to the benefit of the consumer. And, you know, personally, I think that a lot of what they've done is a little bit too late. And I think the movie The Big Short is actually a perfect example of what we're trying to fix, how it happened, and tell me about that. So it was a great movie, a great book. I encourage people to, you know, to, to read, to go to the movie. It does a good job explaining um, kind of what happened. I think we're in a much better place as a mortgage industry today. I really do. I think that whether it's a little too late, okay, we're here. And so um, I can say I'm proud to be a mortgage closing attorney again. I was not necessarily proud during that period of time to be closing loans. So I feel really good about where we are in this process. Um, you know, with respect to overregulation, I think there is a tendency to do that. Most importantly, we have to remember what's in the best interest of the consumer, and I think we are in a much better place today with respect to that. I don't disagree with you, and I certainly did not like the way they depicted mortgage brokers in the movie, but you know, I think that it was very interesting to see you know, how you know, the media felt about what happened in 2008 and, and who really was to blame. Was it, you know, were it the banks, were it the rating agencies? Was it all just about greed, which is really my takeaway from that? And I think that when that happened, that I think in some ways that our industry self-regulated itself and subprime lending went by the wayside and no income verification went by the wayside, 100% financing went by the wayside. and. I really believe that we did self-correct, and these regulations today are to make sure that we remain self-corrected. And, you know, I think that that's very interesting. And the one other takeaway I have from the movie is that they didn't talk about real estate attorneys at all. <laughs> well, you know, everyone played their role, I suppose. Um, and I do agree with you. I think I could point to any number of participants, whether it be the rating agency, uh, whether it be the uh, the banker, whatever the case may be, it was a system that really, um, because it was it was self-regulated uh, and it was based on greed, then you were going to have problems anyway. You look at that. I think today we have a uh, uh, we have a much smarter um, industry. What I mean by that is a lender making a loan. 125% of the value of the property is obviously a situation that is going to potentially be problematic. Uh, attributing certain income um, levels to someone who is not making that income is also going to be a problem. So the days of not verifying information, I think, are long gone. You know that. And so I think we are in a better place. And the latest regulation that, that we've had is TRID, which we just mentioned before. And and. Talk to me about like your experience with TRID and what do you think is the best part about it and then what do you think is the worst? So TRID again is really, all TRID is is, is a disclosure law. It, it, it is requiring that the consumer, the, the borrower receives information in a certain form um, and at a certain time. And that's probably the biggest change is the requirement that these forms, the loan estimate, the LE, and the CD, the closing disclosure, be delivered so that the, that the borrower has an opportunity to review them. They're not surprised at the closing table. So that's the best part. The best part is the fact that the consumer does not have any surprises. Uh, the worst part, I think, is that 
um, is that it will take some time for for these requirements to sink in. Um, and then there's, and the other thing is there's always a cost associated with, with new regulation. And I think unfortunately that the, uh, that the borrower, uh, the cost of closing a loan is, is probably gonna go up. So that's the worst part and hopefully those kind of meet in the middle. No, I absolutely agree with you. I know that on, on my end, the mortgage banking side of it, that the compliance that we are now required to do is very costly. And that cost essentially gets passed on to the consumer. And you know, I think that that's unfortunate, but I agree that more information is better. We just need to be able to integrate TRID into our lives. I know, for example, I had you know one of my TRID nightmares that I've had is that with our different disclosures, the clock only starts once our clients actually open the email with the disclosure. And we have found that there are people that actually don't open their emails and don't understand, even though they've been told that they have to open the email so they can start the three-day clock prior to closing. Sure. And I've seen that delay, delay closing. What's yeah. your biggest trid nightmare? Well, again, we, you know, you can do any number of things. You could have the transaction where um, the the buyer is is going non-contingent, so the deal is not subject to a mortgage. Yet many buyers who say, "Look, I'm not worried. I'm saying to the seller, don't worry about me getting a mortgage." Yet they're still going to use financing, and because this delays the closing, can delay the closing, um, my concern is to make sure that that seller agrees that even though the deal is non-contingent on a mortgage, they're going to cooperate. So those, those types of things. Uh, we both work with real estate brokers. It's really important that we make sure that the real estate brokers who are the first, many times, the first point of contact with, with the consumer, the buyer, the seller, that they are educating those buyers and sellers as to these things. So one final concept is uh, you know the, the the seller that has to sell in the morning and then use those proceeds to buy in the afternoon if both of those uh, if the, both of those transactions are uh, have trid involved that's going to be hard to do and we're going to need to again cooperate collaborate and so on and I think it's also about managing expectations hundred percent that you know our buyers all seem to remember what the world was like pre-2008 and, and don't understand that you know, things have changed and why should that affect them. And everyone wants to close on a certain date or get something done and that it's really important that I as a mortgage banker, you as a real estate attorney, plus a real estate broker act together as a team so that we make sure that everyone understands you know, each part of the process so that we can work together as a team to get our clients closed and keep them happy. Right. I mean, in my eyes, the for me, the last takeaway my clients have is what happens at the closing table. So, you know, I love working with you because I know that when my clients get to that closing table with you, that they will have a positive experience and, and the way you run your practice. Um, and we, you know, we value that. We recognize that if, if because we're generally the last contact, um, that you may have done a great job, but we, we we have no room to, to not do an unbelievable job as well. It's all about customer experience, user experience, and, and we, we value that you will allow us to, to make sure that we will provide that same level of, of excellent customer service that you provide. No, I agree. I mean, I've always uh, grown up with a motto that I'm only as good as my last mortgage, and, and Knowing you, I know that you have that same motto, that you're only as good as your last closing. Absolutely. So now let's segue back into you and back into real estate law. And, and I want to talk about sort of different spheres of things that are going on. Um, 
with everything that's going on, you know, for example, we saw an article today that for purchases over $3 million that are closed in the name of an LLC, the Nashville borrower has to be identified. Um, and there are a couple of main reasons why people close in the name of an LLC. Um, name the two most important, please. Well, it depends. Um, first of all, an LLC, and, and kind of going back and segueing back to the big short, um, big short day, obviously, there was a lot of things done wrong. Um, with respect to purchasing an LLC, I think that there may be an overregulation here from the perspective that, that, the, um, that the regulators are looking at a small handful of, um, of uh, purchasers that were, were using ill-gotten gains to purchase and so on. But, but the majority of purchasers that use an LLC are doing it for perfectly legal reasons. And it could be because there are, um, a, it's a business. There are a number of purchasers and that's why they might use an LLC vehicle. Now, there are also some that may want to have anonymity, uh, celebrity. Right, they want to be discreet. Right, so, so there's lots of reasons, but I kind of feel like they're grouping all of the the small handful of bad actors, and as a result, they're treating they're treating everyone as if they've done something wrong. And so, I do have a problem with that. This actually started with New York City, the Department of Finance, saying that on their um, every transaction requires um, a transfer tax form to be filed. Right. And New York City was saying, well, if you're using an LLC or a partnership, we need to know who the the, the participants, the natural people, are. But by the way, that information is kept confidential, uh, at least as far as we're told it's not made public, and, and their goal really was to understand, to make sure that people weren't avoiding paying taxes. This is now that next step that the federal government is stepping in. And again, my biggest concern with regulation is let's not make sure that we don't overregulate. And so there are very compelling reasons to use an LLC that were perfectly legal. It could be interesting to see where they go with this now. And when you have someone who's buying, do you recommend that, for example, if it's a couple and if one person has greater liability or the income is from one person to the other, when do you recommend that they take title together or that they take title in the name of one spouse or the other, or one partner or the other, or in an LLC? Every situation is different. So, for example, let's use the, with respect to the LLC, let's say that you're buying a condominium for, uh, for rental purposes. You're not going to live there. It's an investment property. I may very well tell you that it's smart to buy that, uh, to put that into the name of an LLC to limit your exposure with respect to the ownership of that. Now, let's say that you're buying that LLC with, with your spouse. Uh, if your spouse is in, um, in a profession that maybe has uh, you're concerned about asset protection, then you might put it into the name of one spouse. Like a doctor? Could be a doctor, um, or you have a situ for estate planning purposes. There, there's, there could be a lot of really good, compelling reasons why you would have uh, ownership in one name or an LLC. And again, circling back to the regulation, I just want to make sure that, that the, the people that are using it for, for the rightful purposes aren't uh, prevented from doing so. No, I completely agree with you, um, and I think something that's sort of an interesting fact is that I've seen over the course of the past year that co-op buildings are now allowing people to buy in the name of the LLC, I think primarily because of you know trying to be discreet and not wanting to share all of their lives with everyone else. I mean, Tina Fey bought an apartment. We know exactly where she's buying. We've seen right. the listing. We've seen the floor plan. And people don't want their lives to be made public if they're a public person. Sure. Absolutely. And I mean, the co-ops, um, for many years, they didn't allow anything but a, a natural person. And then 
we started to see trusts. They would allow trusts. And there are things that the co-op can do. I understand why they might not. They, they don't want to have to sue an entity, for example. So uh, they're concerned about oh, who's going to live there. So you can do an occupancy agreement. You can. There's things that you can do that the co-op can do to still maintain uh, their requirements while allowing some flexibility and ownership. No, I agree. I actually find it amazing that co-op boards are finally loosening up and that we're even seeing a number of these all-cash buildings in the city uh, actually allowing financing today yeah. and understanding the nuances in the marketplace and the volatility of the stock markets and, and what they can do in order to maintain and support the value of their apartments by becoming, you know, keeping up with the times as opposed to pretending they're still living in the 1950s. Sure. You know, I would say the, you know, the best news and the worst news about a, a co-op and buying it is, is the co-op board. On the one hand, there's a lot of restrictions, a lot of potential personalities to deal with. But on the other hand, if you look at it as an asset class, um, because they're vetting the parties that are coming in from a financial perspective, their foreclosures are very low as compo- compared to other asset classes. So, you know, there's a lot of really good reasons why you might want to buy in a co-op. And there are a couple of bad reasons, too. And I think primarily that's because the co-op has the right to reject your application to buy in the building for any reason. And they don't technically have to provide that reason to you. Correct. I mean, they can't violate fair housing laws, so co-ops absolutely have the obligation to follow all fair housing laws, but they also don't have, if they don't like, um, you know, if they don't like your green hair, and green hair is not a protected fair housing category, then they can reject you. Oh, there's a non-protected class? That's amazing. Yeah, green hair is not a protected class. So, have you ever had a client who's been declined by a board and gone after and tried to sue the building? We we have, it, it's very hard, as you said, because co-op boards are not required to give a particular reason. Um, we, we have, I don't think we've ever sued a co-op board, but we have been in situations where um, we have felt that maybe there were, were not, um, that they were not treating the seller the right way. And in some cases, the seller just find, moves on to the next one. It's just not worth fighting about. I think each situation is probably a little bit different. Um, we've had buyers reapply and in some cases have been approved. In other cases, they, you know, it's been a, a kind of a futile exercise. So each situation is different. And most importantly, talk about setting expectations. When we meet with, uh, with the purchaser of a co-op, we have certain um, you know, due diligence items that we share with them, make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into. So when you have a client who's buying a piece of property uh, and they're considering, maybe you, you, you speak with them early on in the process and they're thinking about buying a co-op or maybe looking at condominium, what, what recommendations do you make to your buyers about that? Well, first, if the buyer is not planning on living there or not living there on a full-time basis, then we're going to suggest that a condo is probably going to give them a lot more flexibility. Condo boards um, don't have the right to reject a prospective, um, a prospective tenant and so on. And so that's the first thing. If, if, if you're not planning on living in that property on a, on a fairly full-time basis, then we're going to think about a, a condo uh, for you. But co-ops tend to be um, less expensive. The closing costs associated with co-ops are, you know, are, are also um, cheaper. So there are a lot of good reasons to, to for each one, and we'll, we'll talk to, to our purchasers and get a feel for what their best uh, their best needs are. You know, as an aside, and I rent, and I should never admit that, um, when I made application to the building that I live in currently, I had to go through a full financial review. 
So as a tenant, you know, the application process for me would be the same as if I were buying a co-op. Um, so it's interesting to see the condominium buildings are, get, are really more interested to see who's actually going to be making the payments. They, they definitely are. Condos have the right of first refusal, so they have the right to, in theory, step in and say, okay, I'll buy the property, uh, I'll buy the condo, or I'll rent the condo on the same terms that you had. And so they're relying on that concept to say, well, we need to vet that prospective tenant, that prospective purchaser. They're, they're using that as an excuse to really delve into your financials when they probably don't have the right to do that. So as we wrap it up, I have a big question for you. What do you think is the most important thing that's going to happen in, in the legal industry and in the real estate world in 2016? I think that TRID is, is obviously going to be something that we're going to have to continue to get used to. That is really, it, it was the biggest change, as we said before, in the last 20 plus years. So I think everyone is going to have to really get become accustomed to, to meeting those requirements. I think that will happen over time, which will ultimately be a better closing process. Um, with respect to just more, I think that we're going to continue to see um, low inventory. I think we're going to continue to see historically low interest rates. So I'm anticipating more of a status quo type of thing, more of a normal environment. Um, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to a good 2016. And me too. And just as my last comment, you know, I've seen that banks are becoming more and more aggressive, understanding that when, you know, after 2008, they said, oh, now you have to put down 25%. But we have banks now that are allowing 90% financing. But I want to thank you, Neil, so much for joining me. This has been a great conversation. My pleasure. And I look forward to the next one. Same. Thank you. 